1: Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have David E. Fishman, Professor of Jewish History at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York. He's here to talk to us about his new book, The Book Smugglers, Partisans, Poets, and the Race to Save Jewish Treasures from the Nazis, published in 2017 by Forege. David, thanks very much for being with us today.
0: Thank you, Max. It's a pleasure.
1: So first question, how did you come to write this book?
0: <clears throat> That's quite a story. It goes back many, many years. Uh, I was, uh, It goes back to 1989. I was uh, fresh out of graduate school, a young PhD uh, in East European Jewish history, and I got a call. From the uh, YIVO Institute for Jewish Research in New York, which is an institute that uh, focuses on the study of East European Jewry. Uh, (coughs) YIVO is in New York, but it was founded in Vilna. Uh, And uh, uh, they gave me a call that they just found out that in Vilnius, the contemporary name now for Vilna, it's now the capital of Lithuania, that uh, they got a call that. uh, They just found out in 1989 that there's an enormous stash of Jewish material in a church or a former church in Vilnius. Uh, It's in Yiddish, it's in Hebrew. And they asked me to go visit to see what the material was. And I went on that trip. This was still Soviet Lithuania, part of the Soviet Union. I found an amazing uh, array of uh, books, papers, and documents And of course, uh, as I was looking at it, the first question is, how did this material end up here in a church building uh, in 1989? And uh, I've always been curious and I accumulated material. I wrote an essay about the topic. And then a number of years ago, I, I was busy with other subjects. I wrote other books. A number of years ago, I decided, you know what? I really can write a book about it and I should write a book about it. And so this uh, this book describes explains uh, this sort of odyssey of Jewish books and papers in in Vilna Vilnius uh, Lithuania.
1: Brilliant. So first off, tell us a bit about Vilna before the war, uh, and about one of the central figures in your book, uh, Schmerke Kaczyginski.
0: <laughs> Vilna was not the largest Jewish community in Eastern Europe, uh, but it did have a very distinguished position culturally as an intellectual center, as a printing center, as a literary center. And it did have the nickname Yerushalayim Delita in the Jerusalem of Lithuania. Uh, So it had uh, great libraries, great institutes, um, Educational institutions, both religious and modern. Um, so it stood out. I often, for students, compare it to Oxford or Cambridge. You know, those are, they aren't London, <laughs> but nonetheless, they are great intellectual centers. So you can have such a place, which is relatively modest in size, but great uh, inter- on the ele- intellectual arena. Um Kachaginsky, you're right, is the central figure in in the story uh, of the books. Um his background is quite extraordinary because he's an orphan. He grows up his parents died during World War One of typhus and other diseases. He's an orphan. He grows up in an orphanage, and yet He really uh, pulls himself up by his bootstraps, gets an education, goes to evening school, and uh, becomes a poet, an editor, a writer, and really the uh, heart and soul of the Yiddish literary group, uh, Jung Vilna. So in some ways, he even reinforces my characterization of Vilna the city in that you could have such a biography of a person who grows up penniless, without parents, without support, uh, and yet can get himself educated, become a reader, and then become a writer and a a book lover.
1: So tell us a bit about um, what happened when Filner was occupied by the Nazis how the paper brigade was formed and how they carried out their smuggling operation.
0: Uh, Vilna was occupied by the Nazis in uh, late June, 1941 as part of the campaign against the Soviet union. Uh, in other words, you know, Warsaw was occupied in September, 1939. It was almost two years later that the Soviets um, occupied um, Vilna and, Just briefly to give a broad context, um, uh, uh, in in the first half year, six months of the Nazi occupation, uh, about two-thirds of the Jews of Vilna were murdered. That is, the Jewish population went down from 60,000 to 20,000 in six months. They were sent to the outskirts of town and and mowed down by a machine gun. Uh, then, in january nineteen forty two the mass killing stops. There are all kinds of atrocities, but there's not that kind of massive uh killing and there'll be a year and a half of what's known as the period of stability uh until uh july nineteen forty three uh, now, to get back to my core topic uh the Nazis were not only interested in exterminating the Jews. They were also interested in demonstrating scientifically in, uh, just how vile the Jews were, just what a plague on the Aryan race the Jews were. And they had a field of anti-Semitic scholarship called Judenforschung, the study of the Jews. Uh As part of the development of Judenforschen, uh, the Germans were very interested in collecting valuable Jewish books, manuscripts, and documents. And they had a department in in their main uh, agency for looting cultural treasures. Uh, the, The Germans had a special agency for looting cultural treasures all across Europe, the ERR, we call it the Einsatzstab Reichsleiter Rosenberg. This ERR had a department for looting Judaica, uh, looting Jewish books, uh, documents, manuscripts all across Europe. Uh, it was headed by uh, a person known as Johannes or Dr. Johannes Paul, uh, who knew Hebrew very well, who read Yiddish well, who uh, was considered a a Jewish, an expert on the Jews. Uh, Anyway, Paul came to Vilna for his first visit very shortly after the military, the German military, came in. He came to Vilna in July 1941. Uh, What he took away from his first visit was that he... There was just too much. He, didn't, he underestimated how many treasures there would be, how many books, how many libraries, how many documents. And he didn't have the kind of staff to bring in from Germany uh, to process this material because you're not going to ship all of it to Germany. If you ship all of it to Germany, you're going to get 10 copies or 15 copies of the same book. So you need a sorting process. This should go to Germany because it's valuable. This isn't needed in Germany. It can be thrown away. And uh, who can do that sorting process? So uh, he came up with the idea of uh, you'll have to have a slave labor brigade of Jews, Jewish intellectuals, who will do the job for the Germans. And uh, he created such a brigade, which, which got the nickname... It's an informal name, you know, the Paper Brigade, because they were a bunch of intellectuals basically sorting paper um, into these two categories, what will go to Germany and what will be discarded as trash. So that's the origins of the Paper Brigade.
1: So maybe you can tell us a bit about how they carried out their smuggling operation, what their work was, and how the the smuggling happened.
0: Yes. Uh, Paul... Well, I should say the Germans, there were about three or four Germans. The work site where they worked, this uh, paper brigade, was the former building of the YIVO Institute, the Yiddish Scientific Institute in Vilna, which was outside the ghetto. Uh, So that meant that these slave laborers every morning walked uh, from the ghetto out about 15, 20 minutes to this building And spent the day there. And then at the end of the day came back. Uh, There were about. It's a big building. The Evo building had about 20 rooms. And there were about three or four Germans. So it's not like there's a German in every room. At every hour. At every moment. Uh, The reason this is all important. Is because the main way. There were several ways. The group smuggled material out. Um, One was on their bodies. Uh, they would lo- the workers when Germans weren't looking at the end, toward the end of the day would literally um, stuff papers underneath their clothing and uh, uh, under their shoes or boots, literally under their underwear. And then, you know, March uh, at, back into the ghetto at the end of the work day. And hopefully smuggle it past the guards at the ghetto gate. Um, That was very perilous. You weren't allowed to bring any kind of papers uh, or books into the ghetto. And uh, if there were German guards, you would get beaten very badly or perhaps sent to your death for that uh, offense. The other way... Uh, There are a couple of other ways I want to mention that that materials were smuggled from the the Germans, stolen, if you like. Um, One was the Germans left for lunch, for the lunch hour, uh, and they really left the work site unguarded during the lunch hour. Uh, That meant that non-Jewish friends who lived in the city, in other words, who also lived outside the ghetto, uh, could come to the work site and share food, share encouragement and news with members of the paper brigade, and uh, those non-Jewish friends could then um, <clears throat> at uh, take away. You know, as long as they left on time, there was no problem for them to take away material which they could hide uh, in the city in in various places. Finally, I'll just. Uh, the third way they could smuggle material was on, um, the, the leader of this brigade, a librarian known as Hermann Crook, um, had connections with the ghetto administration, with the U- Judenrat, the Jewish council. And on rare occasions, he could arrange for a truck to come by during the lunch hour. Um, And that truck would then be able to enter the ghetto on an official basis. Trucks did enter the Vilna Ghetto, whether it was to collect garbage or to deliver the official food rations or to uh, remove the bodies of people who had died. So there was some traffic going in and out of the Vilna Ghetto. And when it was organized well, you could literally have a truck stop off at this work site. During the lunch hour, when there are no Germans, Uh, load up things or load it up usually in a hiding place in in the truck and then take it in. So, I'm showing you a mixture of uh, devices that were used to rescue and smuggle material.
1: Yes, it's quite an extraordinary story. Um, Maybe you could tell us a little bit about what some of the material was that they were smuggling out. Um, Throughout the book, you have these um, little interludes about the rescued gems. Uh, Can you tell us uh, about a few of those? Right. I really
0: highlight four gems, and they're purely just, uh, you know, uh, examples. Um, The first I mention is a diary by Theodor Herzl uh, that he wrote. Herzl wrote in the 1880s as a young man uh, in Vienna, which belonged to this Yiddish Institute to YIVO before uh, the war. Um, the second that I highlight is the minute book, the record book, the Pinkas of the synagogue of the Vilna Gaon, the Klois or the synagogue of the Gaon of Vilna, Vilna's most famous rabbi from the 18th century. That synagogue was founded uh, in the mid-18th century, but it continued to function after the Vilna Gon died and it continued to function down until the Holocaust. So we're talking about a synagogue that functioned for 150 years. Uh, And we have the minutes of meetings and of transactions and of decisions by the board. So it's a very um, also symbolically very important uh, document since um, the synagogue itself was destroyed in the war. The Vilna Synagogue. So you have at least the book of, of its history. Of a third type of material, I mention are letters by the great Yiddish writer Sholem Aleichem. Sholm Aleichem was a very prolific letter writer. Uh, he in his early years would write five hundred letters a year. You know, this this is not emailed. This is handwritten, uh, and uh again the especially because there were writers two yiddish poets and writers in this word brigade uh, shmerk Kaczoginski i've mentioned and the other abraham sutskever Vrom sutsker the writers were very concerned about rescuing literary material manuscripts and letters by famous writers and then the fourth and last item i highlight in the book is a uh a bust of the Russian writer, a statuette of the Russian writer Leon Tolstoy, which was um, made by a Russian Jewish uh, sculptor, uh, artist, um, Ilya Ginsburg, who sculpted it from life. In other words, Tolstoy posed for him and they had a relationship. Um, So, uh, also, I wanted to bring that in to show that works of art—it's not only about papers, really, about books, documents, manuscripts—but there were also paintings and sculptures that were rescued by the uh, by the group. But this is uh, this is purely exemplary because, uh, you know, uh, if you there were about twenty people participating in this operation. Uh, who smuggled in in one way or another the material um if twenty people smuggle a few items every day for a year and a half, as I told you, let's say three hundred um work days, you know uh, you do the math you're talking about s- thousands of items that were rescued uh, so it's it's quite voluminous,
1: yeah, that's amazing. Um, So you chronicle how some of the members of the paper brigade survived the war. Tell us a bit about their stories.
0: The main members that survived, well, are these two writers, the two poets. They were fortunate enough to belong to the underground in the ghetto, the armed resistance in the ghetto, the, the United Partisan Organization, Uh, which planned to have a Great Vilna ghetto uprising, something that never quite materialized. So the poets, because of their membership in that organization, um, were whisked out of the ghetto um, just a few weeks before it was dissolved or liquidated and all the remaining inmates were sent to uh, labor camps and death camps. But they were fortunate enough to leave literally uh, two weeks before that um, and left for the forest where they, um, uh, you know, fought the Nazis or participated in the struggle against the Nazis. So they they will survive because they weren't in the ghetto. Uh, one of the other survivors, not a famous figure but a very poignant figure, Rachela um, a high school teacher of history, she was deported at the end of the liquidation of the Vilna ghetto to. Uh, uh, various camps. She ended up in a camp near Danzig called Stutthof, uh which was in 1944 a death camp. It had a crematorium and it was being used for mass murder. But she miraculously survived um that camp and uh and there and the war. So uh my estimation is of the 20 intellectuals who participated in this work brigade, six or seven Survive. The majority perished.
1: So after the war, when the Soviets took over, um, some of this precious material had to be smuggled out again. Um, why was this and how did it take place? Um,
0: well, after the liberation of Vilna by the Red Army from the Nazis, um, you know, the poets come back. They enter Vilna with the partisans or they enter Vilna very soon thereafter They're coming and they're coming back mainly to unearth the material that they helped uh, rescue, which is now in bunkers and hiding places. And there's a grassroots operation by not only by them but by all kinds of survivors who returned to Vilna um, to dig up with shovels or with bare hands uh, the materials. Um, That leads rather quickly to the establishment of a Jewish museum in Vilna at the end of July, 1944, uh, which gets a building, a building actually located in the former ghetto, in the Nazi imposed ghetto. Um, And they're trying with great difficulty to build this museum, sort of as a monument to their destroyed community, But the Soviet authorities, because it's now the Soviet authorities, what they hadn't thought about was Vilna has been freed from the Nazis, but now it's under the Soviets. Now, that's not the same as genocide, but nonetheless, it presented ultimately insurmountable problems. They couldn't get glass for the windows, they couldn't get food, they couldn't get salaries. And uh, things went from bad to worse, first uh, because censors came from the censorship bureau uh, to the museum and said, you know, you have lots of books and papers here. You realize you can't show this to anybody because in the Soviet Union, nothing can be shown to readers without passing censorship. And when the writers asked, well, do you have a censor who can review this material? Uh, the, The censor said, no, we don't very calmly, meaning we don't, we don't intend to. And that's a moment when they realize the materials have been rescued, but they are basically imprisoned now. They will not be accessible to anyone. And on top of that, finally, the culminating problem, uh, the Soviets actually took away material that was outdoors in a courtyard. Again, there was too much material to put inside the building. So it was outdoors in a courtyard. And one night, the um, uh, sanitation department, the trash administration simply came by with trucks and sent that material away as trash. And that is a traumatic experience where they realized that it may well be that as far as Jewish cultural treasures, the Soviets are no better than the Nazis. And we must rescue the materials yet again. Um, and then begins a second smuggling operation of a different nature, which is smuggling the material in bits and pieces and uh, across the border from the Soviet Union, from Soviet Lithuania, uh, to neighboring Poland, which was not yet communist in 1945 and 46. And so that's the second smug rescue of the materials to get it out of the USSR and to get it into a, a freer country. And, and from there, it will move on across Europe uh, and eventually end up mainly in New York at, at the Evo Institute for Jewish Research in New York. And much of it will make its way to Israel. Well, then it was Palestine still, uh, to Palestine or Israel uh, by people who will, who will go
1: there. So tell us a bit about what happened to the remaining collection that stayed in Vilna. Uh, You mentioned the church um, at the start of this interview. Um, Tell us a bit about, yeah, the history of that collection.
0: Of course, these writers, once they decided to smuggle material out, um, they couldn't take everything out. They also had to choose, again, what would they take out and what would they leave? This Jewish museum, they left most of what belonged to the Jewish museum. It was that museum was eventually closed down by the Soviets, uh, and when the Soviets closed it down in 1949, um, they took everything to various Lithuanian repositories. The main repository that got the vast majority of material was the Lithuanian uh, book chamber. That is what what is known as a book archive. In other words, not a library. It doesn't have a reading room, but it's a repository for one copy of every book. Uh, Anyway, the book chamber uh, inherited the majority of the material, but uh, they didn't process the material. They simply kept it in their warehouse, Um, that warehouse is a former church. The book uh, chamber was at a former monastery and its warehouse was the, the church of that monastery. And the director, this is in a sense, the third time material is rescued. The director of the book chamber took great risks because from about 1949, the Soviet union goes through uh, under Joseph Stalin, under the last years of Stalin is uh, an intensely anti-Semitic country with many government-instigated anti-Semitic campaigns. And quite frankly, in the late 1940s, early 1950s, it was dangerous to have books in Hebrew and Yiddish. Many Jews, individuals who had such books, burnt them themselves because they they were afraid they'd be arrested just for the fact of having books um, in Yiddish or Hebrew. Uh, So the director of this book chamber went to great uh, risk uh, by basically hiding this material uh, under mountains of Lithuanian books and Russian books in his warehouse. And uh, a lot of the material that I saw in 1989 was still in these kind of um, mountains, you know, these kind of piles of, of books and it was still being extracted. Um, uh, then I, I basically it was about 40 years of lying around, um, in the warehouse.
1: So, uh, thanks very much for telling us about, uh, your book. Um, David, before we let you go, um, would you be able to tell us a bit about what you're working on next?
0: Oh, <laughs> I'm working on all kinds of things. I must tell you, you know, this is a very unique book for me because my previous books have been quite academic. They're really more for specialists. I, I tried to reach to write this book as a general interest narrative and a, a compelling story. I mean, it's fully documented, lots of footnotes, lots of sources. Um, but you know, specialists can read the footnotes. I think the vast majority of readers don't bother to consult the footnotes. Um, I think now, after having done this, <laughs> I want to go back uh, to, for at least uh, for now, for to more academic writing. Um, I'll connect this project with with my next one by 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 um, with the following in the following way. One of the images I have at the very beginning of the book is of Shmerke, this poet, who was a leftist, who was uh, actually then a a member of the Communist Party. Uh, This poet, Shmerke, this former, uh, this orphan, this writer, you know, uh, hiding religious literature on his body to smuggle into, risking his life um, for old Hebrew religious books. And I think that paradox is really very fascinating of of a secularist leftist risking his life for religious literature. So I want to actually explore that theme of the relationship between the Jewish left, the classical Jewish left in Eastern Europe, whether they're uh, socialist or communist, and their attitude and relationship towards the Jewish religious tradition many jewish socialists were brought up in a uh, religious environment and broke with it rebelled against it but very often still felt some kind of affinity or attachment to it so it's a very complicated relationship uh, of jewish socialists to the religious tradition what You know, sometimes Jewish socialists would appropriate parts of the Jewish tradition. Passover is about liberation. The Tsar is Pharaoh, his ministers are Haman. So they weren't. uh, So unraveling that question of um, how Jewish socialists, radicals, uh, relate to the uh, religious tradition, I think that will be my next uh, book. But I uh, and I'm fascinated by the topic, but I can't promise that it will be as as accessible as this one uh, to the general reader.
1: Well, that sounds like a really great project, and uh, we certainly hope to have you on new books in Jewish studies again to discuss that um, project in the future. Um, but for now, thanks very much for um, being with us on the program.
0: Okay, thank you.
1: So you've been listening to New Books in Jewish Studies with your host, Max Kaiser. And today we had David E. Fishman, Professor of Jewish History at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York, and he talked to us about his new book, The Book Smugglers, Partisans Poets and the Race to Save Jewish Treasures from the Nazis, published in 2017 by 4-H. Thanks for listening.